This is Dan McCarthy, and you're listening to Check In by TMR. The COVID-19 pandemic has been an incredibly unique shared experience for almost the entire travel industry. And one of the most common sentiments shared during that experience, something that I've seen and heard from almost everyone I've spoken to, has been the extreme uncertainty of the pandemic. There's been such an incredible amount of stops and starts and so many times the momentum was brought to an absolute halt. So many times when things seemed to be in the clear, when we were pulled back into the depths of COVID with new worries and new concerns. Everyone seemed to have that experience at the beginning of COVID when the thought was that maybe our offices will be closed for the next two to four weeks and it might be a nice break and an opportunity to connect with people at home. No one, I don't think, thought that this could be dragged well into 2021 with 2022 on the horizon. Just a few weeks ago, there was a headline in the CBS News website that proclaimed travel industry thought it had left COVID-19 behind. Then came the Delta variant. It's inevitable that the time is going to come when the industry has been fully released from COVID's grasp, but I don't think anyone can truly predict as to when that will be. The uncertainty has very much become a part of daily decisions made by executives, by advisors, by consumers, and those who have been able to deal with that kind of uncertainty and accept the inevitable change that is going to come with a lot of those decisions. They've been some of the people that have thrived throughout the last year and a half, or maybe not thrive, but they've been the people that have made it through the best. I'm very happy to speak to someone who has recognized that uncertainty and shared how she dealt with it. My guest for this episode is Jennifer Tombaugh, the president of US-based tour operator Tauk. Jennifer, a Harvard graduate, is coming up on 21 years with the tour operator, the only travel company she has ever worked for. In this episode, she shares what she thinks was the biggest challenge during the pandemic, including dealing with that uncertainty I mentioned earlier, and she takes a stab at what are going to be the biggest challenges for the industry as a whole in the coming decades, including how the industry can continue to attract the kind of talent it needs to continue thriving in the years ahead. We talk about her time living in Taiwan, along with her time working for some of the world's most iconic brands like Coca-Cola prior to joining the travel industry. Jennifer really does have a great story. She's a very optimistic person and someone who I think the travel industry is lucky to have. I want to thank her for once again for her time. And let's check in with Jennifer. Hi, Dan. Hi, Jennifer. How are you? Good. How are you? Fine. I want to apologize in advance for my very casual appearance and probably my ability to be completely inarticulate. I just got off of a red eye. So I'm uh, I'm all up for this, but I'm just there's a cylinder that's not firing every now and then. So, so where were you coming from? I was coming from from uh, I was visiting some friends in Sonoma this weekend. So in California. Yeah. Oh, how was so? How was your trip? It was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, it was really fantastic. I've never so that's wine country in California, right? Correct. Yeah, I've never been out there. Oh my! Where are you based in? I'm in New York. I'm in uh, Brooklyn. Oh, oh, hence the banner in the back. I see it. I saw the Brooklyn bit. Yeah. 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 Um, are you from, are you from the city originally? I'm from, so I'm from Long Island and uh, yeah. my parents are still out on Long Island and my sisters and everything, but I'm in, uh, yeah, I'm in this, I guess, technically the city at this point. And you're in Connecticut, correct? Yeah. I'm in New Haven. I mean, okay. our offices are in Wilton, um, but I live in New Haven. So. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah. I've never, I've never, I've, I've, I've been to, I've been lucky enough to be to San Francisco. Um, yeah. And I think I was in LA when I was a very young kid, but I don't remember, I don't really remember much. So I think California is one of the states that uh, I need to get to at some point, because I mean, it's just, it seems like the, like we're one of the iconic states of America. And um, with all this sort of international travel restrictions, I know uh, the domestic travel sort of gotten a spotlight now. And for me, California is one of those states I feel like I really need to get to. Yeah, no, you definitely do. It was a, it was a really, really glorious. And last night when we were driving to the airport, it just so happened that today's a full moon. So we had a nearly full moon driving over the Golden Gate Bridge on this beautiful night. And it was like one of those pinch me moments. Like, I can't believe this is happening. I mean, it was yeah. like so unbelievably beautiful. So um, anyway, it's worth uh, it's worth going to though, certainly. Yeah, well, I wanna say, I know, I know again, again you're, you're, you're coming off travel, but I do wanna thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Today. Oh, I'm happy to, yeah. Dan. I don't know, I don't know how I got on your radar, but I'm, um, if there's anything that I say that can be valuable, I'm really, really happy to. I, w I wanted to ask you about your career, because I really, sure. I, 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 we might've crossed paths before, but I've never gotten the opportunity to sort of speak, speak with you about your journey in the travel industry. I know you're coming, you're, you're coming off past now two decades with, with, with the company with talk. I'm wondering if you did anything to celebrate those, those 20 years that when you, when you hit that anniversary, was that a special moment for you? Well, it was a very bittersweet moment. So celebrating 20 years at Talk was a very bittersweet mo moment for me. It was May 14th of 2001 that I joined. So that was right before 9-11. And May 14th of this year, we were just coming out of the lockdown and just getting our toe in the water of operations. And so it was sort of a moment of deep reflection, I guess, for me. Uh, we certainly weren't throwing a party. I mean, we were, uh, although I was going into the office, our offices weren't all you know, open yet. And so it was a moment where I paused and felt so grateful to be at Tauk because for me, it's been the, the, I have the best job in the world. I just firmly believe that. And I felt so grateful to be at this company to even through all the pain we've been through in the last 18 months to be part of the team leading us out of it. Overall, just feeling a lot of pride for what our team has accomplished. It's, it's been a long slog. Yeah. And yet I've seen a resilience. I've always loved the people at Tauk. I've always loved our guests and our advisors. And, and yet I saw a different side. I think we all saw different sides of each other. These this last year and a half and you sort of you know at times where there's where there in good times it's always happy happy and you know you've always you, yeah sure you might have some conflict every now and then but when you're down and dealing with the crisis for that long a period of time you really get to know what people are made of there were so many times where I just took a step step back and said wow we we have we have the best of the best and I I'm loving how we're able to continue to be resilient and strong and find ways to be creative to work out of this. So it was very situational, I think, because of this year. But I think in that way, though, too, it was more meaningful to me than simply, oh, it's a 20th you know, anniversary, yay, you know, kind of thing. And to be honest with you, I'm sort of middle of the road now at Tauk. Maybe I'm, I'm even on the, still on the young and scale. I mean, there are plenty of people who are, have been at Tauk 30, 35 years. And so you, there's always opportunity to learn. And again, I think that too is a point of pride that people know a place, love a place and, and have that shared sense of purpose to delight our guests through travel. 
they mentioned the length of the pandemic and we're still very much in the pandemic. And I, was that one of the more tougher things? I mean, you mentioned 9-11. I imagine it felt briefer than this one has felt. I mean, this is, it just seems like every day, it, I mean, it, it, even 2020, especially, it seemed like every day was sort of dragging. And I mean, I know we're coming out of it with domestic travel right now, but it, was it the length of the pandemic that really got to a lot of, got to you? Or was that a thing that was super difficult to deal with? This pandemic and certainly 2020 has been, the, was the hardest year of my life, hands down. Uh, I, I think the only other year I would compare it to was 2008 and nine during the financial crisis when I had just had my third and fourth child, my twins, and I was taking on a bigger role at Talc and it was just physically and emotionally and professionally super challenging. And so I, I think of that, those sort of, you know, that sort of year, year and a half, there's really nothing in comparison to the sort of continued uncertainty. So you're right. There was a lot of certainty after 9-11. I look, I had just started at Talc. I was sort of getting my feet wet. I was in new business development. And I thought, this is the last thing that Talc is going to invest in. And in fact, that was the opposite. We doubled down and, we, and I worked on the launch of Talc Bridges. That was my first project, our family travel. Yes. Was there hesitation? Yes. Was there fear? Yes. Was there crisis management? Yes. Was it new? Yes. It was unprecedented and horrible and awful. Yes. But yes, you saw resiliency that of people coming back and traveling again, right? It, it was nothing like what we've seen. I mean, when you have your 90-year-old chairman, Arthur Taub, at our board meeting saying, well, back in World War II when we shut the company down, you know, you're kind of in a different place. We went, I think what made it even more challenging was that we had gone in February of 2020 coming out of a board meeting where we had just reported on the best year in the 90 at that point, 95 history of the company, your old history of the company. We had great returns. We had, but more importantly, we had great guest satisfaction, great employee satisfaction. I mean, we were firing on all cylinders. Like there, we were talking about growth and opportunity and how do we build out our team? And it was, it was, there were challenges, but they were exciting, you know, brave new frontier kind of challenges. And then within six weeks, we were shutting down all of our operations. And we thought, oh, right, well, this will be, we all did, right? This will be done in a couple of weeks. We'll be back in the office. Don't worry, you know? And the fact it was sort of like Chinese water torture, you, know, you would just, every few weeks, you would get some other bad news and maybe, and then it was a little bit of a tease, right? It's, oh, it looks, it looks like we could maybe operate in June. Oh no, there's another wave okay, well, maybe we could operate in October. And we were gearing up to operate in October, but then another way. And yet in that, we were all working probably harder than we ever had worked in our entire lives. I mean, I would sort of go into my dining room at seven in the morning and come out at nine o'clock at night because you, know, you were just all hands down figuring out how do we, we're very fortunate to not carry any debt. We're very fortunate to have a great family that backs us completely and have a tremendous amount of confidence. Um, you know, Dan Mahar, who's our CEO, is an amazing leader to great executive team who I've met with on Zoom every single day, uh, to work day during this pandemic, sometimes on the weekends too. We've all seen a lot of each other these days. Um, but you learn about this, again, the metal of the people, right? That, that uh, as I mentioned before, and I think that taught us that, look, we are going to, I mean, I'll give our my, colleague Jeremy Palmer, um, who runs all of our strategy and operations, full credit on this because it was last June, June of 2020, where he said to our board, we are going to need to learn with COVID and we're going to need to operate with COVID. And that at that time was a little bit shocking. Like, how could that ever be possible? 
they shut down whole cruise ships because there was, you know, a couple cases like there, how could we do this? And yet that's what we're doing exactly right now. And he, he was right to drive us and really think about, okay, how can we do this as safely as possible? Knowing that nothing is ever perfect, knowing there's always risk in something, how do we manage that risk effectively? And I remember last October, I, we were doing a trial run with eight, turned out all women, which was pretty exciting, but eight of our team members who had gone out and, and test run one of our Cape Cod programs. And I went and met them in Newport to, as they were coming off just to sort of take them to lunch and how you guys doing and thank you. And I'll never forget uh, Joanne Gardner, who heads up uh, our operations team. She walked towards me. She goes, we can do this. Oh, and I just gave myself goosebumps. I mean, it was sort of like this feeling of this is all possible. We can do it. We can. We, it was like that light shining through. And it was it was funny that day in, in Newport. There were so many metaphors, like literally it was a dark, rainy sky. And then this ray of light came through and it hit the lighthouse. I mean, we're in Rhode Island, which is state motto is hope. And, you know, I mean, the, the, the team brought me daffodils from Nantucket, which are also a symbol of hope. And so it was we're like, OK, there's lots of good signs here. I'm going to take them all and uh, and we're going to move forward. And it was um, it was challenging, but we we knew we knew we could make it. And in January of this year, we started operating our winter programs. And now, as of this month, we're operating this week or will be our busiest week this year we'll be operating 70% of the programs we would typically oh. operate. So we're far from being out of the woods. I don't wanna just gloss it over and say, yep, yep, we're done with the pandemic. It's still bumpy, but there's a clear path forward and we know we can do this. And it's it's pretty exciting. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. It, must, it must feel nice to be able to not only welcome guests back, but also get your, get your employees back to work across tours, across everything and, and see people back to, being a major part of the team and things like that, that mu it must feel very nice to be able to do that. You know, there, there's a lot of studies and I've been listening to a lot of webinars as I'm sure you have and others throughout this whole thing about happiness and what drives happiness. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's about building and maintaining relationships. And also it's literally about having the, the we miss the people contact, right? We are a people business and we miss the people contact. And sometimes literally looking at someone in the eyes directly, yeah. like that fires neurologically chemicals in your brain that will make you happier. It's really incredible. So when we see, read those guest comments and when we can see each other in person again, and when our tour directors are out on the road, I can't tell you how many notes I've received where TDs are writing and saying, thank you. I'm so glad to be doing again what I love to do. And when we brought our team back from furlough, I'm so glad to be doing again what I love to do. It's so exciting right now. I mean, again, it's I, I don't want to gloss it over because I still think there's tough decisions and hard work ahead. Um, but, you know, to some extent, there's always going to be. But I, I think there's still be some you know, acute pain as we kind of get through this. Are we border openings and locking down and what's the next variant going to be in another other cycle? So, but we know, we know we can do it. We've got our people back. We know our guests. And, and this is the amazing thing. Our guests are so happy out there. Sure. You always have some outliers, but you always do. Right. Yeah. And there's so, I just got a note this morning from a guest who just got back and said, it felt so good to be traveling with you again, it, putting all of the awful bureaucracy aside of what you need, where to go, when, you know, test form, whatever, which is real and painful when they get there, it's, unbelievable for them and for our team. Yeah, and I, I wanna ask about your career, but I do wanna just touch on something. You mentioned uh, how exciting it is now and there's all these, you think there's gonna be more decisions obviously in the future. Yeah. I mean, is that a skill you've picked up during the last year and a half? Is it being more comfortable with that uncertainty and being able to 
be comfortable with these these lists of decisions you're going to inevitably have to make is that a skill you think you've gotten better at or is that something you've developed throughout your career well i think i think look as i think with any career path you develop a certain level of resilience because you just have experience and you you learn new situations that maybe you only thought about hypothetically but then when you experience them right you develop and change it, it's sort of what my pediatrician said to me one time said i i used to give people you know, parents, lots of advice about their kids until I had my own kids. And then I realized, you know, everybody is really different. So I think, yes, naturally you do develop some resilience to this. And I guess I'd say two things. I, I think we've all will continue to struggle with uncertainty. It, it's very unsettling. You sort of feel like you're running in quicksand, right? Because you never know where the next issue is going to be. But I do think that we have developed enough different scenarios and experience now that we kind of go, oh, okay, that's what we do here then. Or, oh, that kind of sounds like that. So let's make it happen this way. You know, each tour can have new challenges and that we had not expected. And so, yes, I, I mean, we have a whole new vocabulary, right? That we didn't have a year ago, right? You know, vaccination guards, antigen, PCR, PCRRT, PCRNNA. Yeah. You know, I, mean, I mean, you go through this whole thing, you know, passenger located, all these, we didn't even speak this way a year ago, right? And so, yes, does that sort of hone and develop do you develop it's like anything do, do you do you practice and develop some muscle memory and develop some calluses along the way yes i think that's all true i also say that in the another webinar i attended early in the pandemic from the harvard business school was on novel uh novel crises like we have a great crisis management team and i think there was something like five or six thousand people on this web webinar and uh they said basically you're about to go into this was last april april of 2020 i'll never forget it this is a crisis that no one knows an answer to and, the, and I have to say that gave me great strength because sometimes I feel like, oh, I got to figure out what the answer is. And it's sort of like, well, nobody knows the answer. So we're going to just, we all just have to talk to each other and, and help each other because nobody knows the answer to that. Yeah. But what, what, the, what the, 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 the webinar went on to say is that you're going to try things. Some things are going to work. Some things aren't going to work. And you're going to learn. And then you're going to repeat. But if you if you know what your core values are, if you know what you believe in, and you know at the end of the day what you're trying to achieve, and you use that as the litmus test for, okay, what have we learned from this? And is it true to our values? And how do we move forward? You're going to be fine. You're going to shepherd it through. And and it really has that really stuck with me because we have always been, especially as a family company, so core on doing what's right for the guests making sure we think about the long-term, being conservative, building trust, taking care of the brand, taking care of each other. Of course, we had to make tough decisions because there's only so many dollars in the world, right? That we can, and that we can work with. But, but with that reality in place, that guidance did stay our North Star. And, and I think we've always held true in all of our decisions to our core values of at the end of the day, we will be operating again. And, it's most important that the guests and the patrons who have traveled with us before come back and travel with us again. And we give them reason to do that. And that we do all this with enough integrity that we will continue to attract the new business that we need to power our future. And, you know, the, the family, I, I really can't say enough about the Tau family and how supportive they've all been for everything we've done. And we feel really, really blessed and lucky for that. Yeah, it is. I mean, everyone, everyone sort of has their own pandemic story. But I think a lot of it was that it was people trying to figure out how to deal with this uncertainty, or deal with questions every day. And I think, uh, I think the whole industry has sort of been lifted up by by that kind of resilience. And I'm sure I mean, I, I'm you've been in the industry longer than I have. And I'm sure you've seen that 
before the COVID as well, uh, that kind of resilience and that kind of, uh, that kind of strength from the industry. Well, it's absolutely. And I, I have to say, uh, you know, two things on that is that in a lot of ways, our industry became closer. We, there, there are folks across USTOA or other parts of the industry that I talk to every week, every other week, just mm -hmm. sort of checking in, how are you doing? Not from a, hey, competitively, what are you doing? It's sort of like part, part of it has become very, you know, from a friend perspective, like how are you guys doing? Because everybody's going through the same thing, right? And we're only, the industry is going to rise if everybody rises, right? We, it, this is really, you know, floating all boats. So we want everybody to pull through this. But then also there are best practices. Like how are you dealing with the situation? Or what are you doing about the, you know, the Netherlands shut down or, you know, border closure? Here's what we're doing. You know, let's help each other out in a way that that's not, that's, not, you know, not a, not a collusion sort of thing, but in a way that helps us make sure we can each put our best foot forward for our guests so that we can, we can work our, the industry yeah. through it. I'll also say though, the resilience of the guests is what's amazing. Like you brought up 9-11 early on. And, you know, I remember at that point, it was sort of a 12 to 18 month recovery period. And okay. you, you might remember too, we had a number of terrorism in, incidences and, and then the, the 0809 meltdown. And it seemed like after every crisis after that, it got a little shorter. It was maybe done just a year or then nine months or then six months or then three months. And the fact that you see, not everybody of course, but the fact that you see already people pent up travel, wanna go traveling out there. I think for pretty much everybody in the industry, 2022 looks to be probably one of the best years ever on record. It just speaks again to the resilience of people, right? This was a horrible global tragedy and yet people still want to move on. And I, I think that speaks a lot to the human spirit and just for all of us as explorers, right? That, that you can't quench. Yeah, and, and part of me, I mean, every time someone mentions 2022 now, which has always seemed to be the the year people look to, it's part of me is frightened how deep we are in a 2021 already. So I know I know those 2022 numbers, hopefully if they stay on track for everyone, um, it's it's coming up pretty quickly too. Um, so we could we could see a big bounce soon. But I want to ask about uh, I want to ask about your career because I did a little research on you before this interview, and you you seem to have such an incredible amount of unique experiences. I know a lot of people in the travel industry share this level of uniqueness, but I know you spent a lot of time in Taiwan. I know you went to college for an, a, a major unrelated to uh, travel and hospitality. Uh, yeah. And I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about what your plans were when you were in school and then how'd you end up in the travel industry? So, yeah, I was, uh, I, I came from West Virginia um, into college and it was a little bit of a, a very, I went from a big fish in a small pond to a very, very small minnow in a giant pond. And I, uh, I went back to sort of what I was, the only thing I was good at, I tried government and economics and I ended up at English and American Lit and wrote my thesis on F. Scott Fitzgerald and I loved it. And I, to this day, I edit everybody's uh, memos that go out the door and I drive all my colleagues batty. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I learned a lot about how to write and I, I think those elements of communication have served me incredibly well. I'm always, you know, you always think those, those humanities degrees, what does that really do for you? But, you know, thinking, criti uh, developing critical thinking skills and especially communication skills is something that I'm so, so grateful for. Um, I guess if I would do it again, I would have done history and lit because I just, I, I spend with our travel, you know, we spend so much time understanding how history and culture collide and kind of what drives and what motivates culture to develop the way it does. And so I think I, if I, maybe I'll at some point go back and, and do some classes there. 
But I always, um, you know, I always love travel. My mom is German. My dad sold insurance and uh, he was pretty good at it. So we would get, he would win these, you know, incentive trips and we would get to go. We didn't have a lot of money growing up, but travel was always the priority. Like we would either go see my mom's family or we would um, take a trip. He would add on to one of the trips that he won. And I always loved it. My brother loved it. And when I got to college, I had to get a job and it just so happened there was a travel agency at school. It was called Let's Go Travel, um, all student run. And uh, there was a, a series of books kind of at the same time of Lonely Planet, kind of the same idea. It was all student developed uh, travel guides. And we would send the research writers to, to Europe and other places every year. But then also we sold like backpacks and URL passes and that sort of thing. And I loved it. It was it was so much fun. It was a way to get into travel, to learn business, to um, learn management. Like I worked as the kind of the counter one year, and then I ran the agency the second year. And it was a great experience, and it really whet my appetite for for uniting passions that I love and business. And I love running things and organizing things. I was one of those kids, you know, in the student council and all that kind of stuff. So I always loved bringing people together for something greater and really sensing that sense of purpose and, and that energy that comes from when people are together. And I guess when I applied to business school, it was, um, I don't know, I think I wanted to work in the Olympics or run, you know, work on putting up, pulling off events or something like that, because that's sort of what I like to do. And that was always fun and enjoyable for me. And I always loved the joy and the satisfaction when people had those experiences together. And I guess, I, but I never thought I would think of travel as a career. I mean, I went off after uh, college and I worked for a management consulting firm and then between first and second year of business school, uh, at which I, I found a real love for like consumer research and consumer insights and what was it about that way? I, I guess I wish I'd taken a psychology course too. Like, why do people behave the way they do? Why do they buy what they do? Especially image marketing. Like, why do people buy a pair of jeans that has a different label on the back? You know, what is it about the brand that kind of it, it initiates and changes um, purchase behavior? And so I worked for Coca-Cola. I worked for uh, a summer between first and second year. I worked on the launch of Powerade. Um, wow. And so I was, I remember I was doing, I had a giant sampling tank on the back of my, on my back um, in, in uh, the Chicago stadium at a soccer game, handing out samples of Powerade. That was part of my, one of my internship weeks. Uh, but it was great. And I love Coca-Cola. And I went back there after second year and worked on Fresca and Diet Sprite. And then my boyfriend, now husband, was though moving to Taiwan with another classmate and uh, who, who was Taiwanese and, and uh, helping him with his family's company. And so he said, why don't you come? And I'm thought, well, what the heck am I going to do in Taiwan? I don't speak Chinese. I don't know any of these things. But I, I decided to do it. And uh, I ended up working I said, only if I can get a job. So I found a job at Leo Burnett, uh, which is an advertising agency. The now publicist bought them. And I worked on, interestingly, Coca-Cola became my client. And I had a lot of beverage clients and Heineken and Johnny Walker. And uh, then I worked on Hermes and uh, Procter & Gamble brands and Kellogg. So I got a lot of consumer packaged goods experience. That I thought was great. And I will tell you, going into a, a country where you know nothing nothing about anything like about the culture about the language about anything i mean i sat in a lot of meetings like a tennis match just watching conversations and having no clue what was going on and every now and then someone would translate for me but you know you kind of get it after a while and i got a tutor 
And it was an amazing experience because when you're studying advertising, again, you're getting into what's the what's in the mind of the consumer. And so I learned so much about the Taiwanese people and the Taiwanese culture by understanding what they purchased and why they purchased and what were some of the insights about their, what they thought about family and what they thought about community and what they thought about all that sometimes were very, very different than what I knew, right? So what would, what would be one of the bigger differences uh, between, I guess, that culture and this culture in North America? Well, I think one of the main things is family. You know, there's a, there's a, a phrase in Chinese about three generations under one roof. And their families all live together. You know, the, there's you always have your grandparents, not always, but you you don't have an assisted living center necessarily. You, you your family lives with you, right? I mean, and you take care of the, each other. You know, I think that's a very Asian, not just Taiwan, but but overall. And that was really heartwarming that there was this that that core cell of community that. I think used to live, exist in the United States really isn't that prevalent any longer where you have that kind of bond, right? And then there was just sort of practical, silly things that getting someone who doesn't drink cold milk, a culture that doesn't have cold things for breakfast in the morning because they don't feel like that's very healthy. How do you get them to eat cereal in the morning? Yeah. You know, as my as my boss said, it would be like trying to convince people in West Virginia to have sushi for breakfast. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I get it. Um, so there, you just you just sort of had to change your thinking and say, okay, well, what's relevant? Not do what I believe in, or what do I think that's right, but what's really going on for that for those consumers? So, but uh, you know, it was a time where it was uh, the dot com bubble and and dot dot com was taking off, and we had lots of friends who were doing very well in that in that whole new burgeoning industry and. We were to the point after I was there for three and a half years, my husband was there for five, and you have to decide as an expat, are you going to stay there forever or you move on? There, there's just this, I can't explain exactly when it happens, but you kind of know, like there, there's a point where it's either time to move on or it's time to like say, okay, we're all in. And we decided we didn't want to, stay. we love Taiwan and I miss it very much, but we didn't want to live in Taiwan for the rest of our lives. So we were backpacking around Asia and we were on the Annapurna circuit in Nepal and we we're in, a, in an internet lounge in Kathmandu, came back three weeks later, and the our account balance before and after were dramatically different because the bubble had burst. And uh, we realized, okay, we probably need to go back and get jobs again. And I thought a lot about, well, what do I really want to do? And uh, my husband ended up with a fuel cell company here in Connecticut. So I always loved travel. So maybe I should do like, you know, I can do beverages again, but I thought I love travel. I really, I've always loved it personally. I love how it makes people feel. I love the people that you meet. I love the ethos about it. Maybe I'll do, you know, adventure travel in Asia, but there was really nothing in Connecticut that had that. And then through networking, I learned about this company, Talc, and it just so happened that that was the year Talc won world's best tour operator in travel and leisure magazine. I'm like, what's this company? So I found a connection to Peter Tauk and then to Dan Mahar, who hired me 20 years ago, who is now our CEO. And um, it was it was just, it was an incredible experience. I interviewed with a few other travel companies and all of them, it was a time of roll-ups and people were talking about exit strategies and financial returns and how do you gain this efficiency? And Peter sat there with in, the, in my interview, my first interview with tears running down his face at telling me about when his father, Arthur, who's 90 now, reading comment cards from our guests from the bugaboos and how life-changing it was for, for them and therefore for Arthur and therefore for the family and, and, and the passion and the belief at Tau to really delight people through travel and, and what are the experiences that we can deliver. And it was 
you know, everybody's got their little mission statement on the wall, but I walked out of there going, whoa, this is a different kind of place. And it stayed true to that. It wasn't about, as, as Arthur always says, if you delight the guests, there'll be a pile of beans at the end. You know, like you, you, it wasn't about how much money can you squeeze out of the organization. It was about what do we do that's right by the guests? How can we give the best experience that we possibly can? How do we take care of our people? I mean, yeah, there's always bumps along the way. I don't mean to sound like the land of milk and honey, but it, it's not always that easy. But if you do that right, you're going to delight our guests. They're going to tell other people. And you build, as Arthur Tauk, the founder, said in 1925, you'll build a following. And you felt that from the moment, from my first interview. And so when I got hired to work in new business development, I, I said, yeah, this is a pretty special place. And so I said, they may fire me, but I'm not, I'm not leaving. <laughs> Well, I, obviously you had a ton of experience in business prior to, to joining yeah. Tauk, but what was the learning curve like coming into the travel industry? Almost almost essentially cold on the sort of business side of things, um, not as not as a consumer. I mean, was there a lot to learn? How was it having a family to sort of help educate you during during your sort of ascension into the industry? Yeah, it, well, I remember, oh, I was terrified because <clears throat> I really didn't know anything. I remember we had just finished these cross-company teams. There was groups that had broken up and across, you know, cross-functional teams to figure out how do we grow the businesses back in, in, in our 75th anniversary. So they had just finished that. And I, for my first week we joined, for, I joined for the presentations to just listen what the company, what, what people were doing and try to absorb all of this. And Dan looked at me and goes, okay, here's the business plan. Why don't you come back in a couple of weeks and figure out, okay, flesh this out, figure out what we're going to call it. I need some action steps. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So a lot of it was, and I learned this from Coke, my great boss, Jackson Kelly would say, go down, introduce yourself. And then, you know, ask these questions, set up a meeting, introduce yourself, ask this question. And that's what I did. I just went around the company. I said, I'm new here. Tell me what you do. Tell me what challenges you have. And so when I worked on this launch of what became Talk Bridges, I kind of then started to know who to go to, but that was also carving a new path. So you're just sort of figuring it out, but it was, it's, it always is a steep learning curve. Right. But I, I think what is really made it so easy were so many people, again, tap willing to help, willing to help teach. I think if you're in the travel business, business, you've got to have a sense of service. You got to have a sense of service to others, certainly our guests, certainly our advisors, but to each other. And it was that how I saw that manifest out. So yeah, there's a steep learning curve, but it was a lot of people willing to help me kind of get on my feet, which forever, you know, I'm always indebted to. So the amount of diverse products that, that Tauk offers is something I, am, I imagine too, that can be fairly overwhelming when you're just coming on board or you're just looking at the company I mean, was that, was that, again, was that difficult to learn? Is that, is that ever overwhelming for you even now to be able <laughs> <Sure>. to, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, when I started really, we were just primarily a land company. I mean, we did have some small ship programs uh, yeah. uh, to be fair, but, and, and even, but even just learning all the land programs, I mean, operating a Canyonlands program is very different than operating a program in China or India, right. Or Africa. They're just, they're different animals and with different needs and, and, especially now that's true but so there's that learning curve of just what are all who are all these suppliers who are all these components you know what are all these components what are all the who are the tour directors so it's absorbing all of that but over the last 20 years is when you've seen that really acceleration of growth and product diversity so we really ramped up our small ship cruising investment we built and with our we found our partners with Skilla and developed um, our river cruise programs that's really been in the last you know 20 years in the robust way that it is now I worked on the launch of Bridges. 
which then was very helpful to help me learn about how is this the same or different than other programs that we offer. So working on the branding and say, what does the TAUC brand stand for? And then what do all these individual sub-brands that are also TAUC related, where do they stand and what, what, what role do they play in the portfolio? It was exciting. I mean, that's the stuff I like to do. I like yeah. my, my background is in brand strategy and strategic thinking and, you know, management anyway. And so that was fun to kind of figure out. But now, I mean, what's hard now is navigating through it. You know, when you have a land program, it's, it's pretty straightforward, right? You, you have partners and negotiate with them. Everything's variable. When you start getting assets in it, like ships, you know, then things get a little bit more complicated, right? And so how do you manage that? How do you manage the partnerships? How do you manage with your partners through the uncertainty? You know, that those are all the things that literally this week at our board meeting we'll be talking about, right? And so um, is it challenging? Of course it is. But as we were, uh, as I, I said the other day to someone, that diversity has what is what has made us as successful as we have been now in the last 20 years. You know, that's allowed us to power a growth that we hadn't seen before. Um, we're responding to the consumer market. We know that guest needs are changing. They want that more of that, that water-based program. You know, we saw the explosion in river cruising. We wanted to seize that. We saw the explosion in family multi-gen travel. We, we seized that. Small ship cruising, especially now in the wake of, well, all of this in the wake of COVID, wanting more smaller groups on our land programs, smaller ships, smaller experiences on our river cruises, that we've all been able to, to leverage. And so I think the fact that we have choice, it's like any product portfolio, right? It's product portfolio has complexity, but also man, it, it diversifies your risk. And so we're really, really grateful to have the diverse platform that we do. Is that, you think, do you think that the, the group size when it comes to travel, whether it's tours or, or sailings or anything like that, the group size is the biggest trend right now. You think that's what's going to be driving the industry, smaller, smaller experiences, more intimate experiences? Absolutely. We, we've said small is big. Again, pre-COVID, this was our mantra because we already saw people wanting access because people want more experiences that they can't do on their own. They, they want that intimacy of experience, to use your word. They want that, the, the feeling that they can, and, and frankly, it's a lot easier to operate when you have a smaller group to get that access, right? While certainly our classic size groups um, enable that too, we had seen that trend and we were, had started adding smaller group departures to land. We had built our small ship cruising particularly to have that intimacy. We had built our river cruise programs. We have the, the best guest to guide ratio in the industry. In other words, our we have fewer people, you know, the ship is the ship is the ship. And they're all the same size. It's a question of what you do with the inside of it. And we have the fewest number of, of traveling guests to the highest degree of uh, staff on any river cruise line out there. And so that level of care and service is what people then again start to expect from Tau. They expect that, you know, people are choosing us because of the access, because of the tour directors and that one-on-one that -on -one, uh, relationship, and then about the reputation that we have. And we knew we had to continue to build that out, and that was the way to do it. I think COVID just pushed on the accelerator on that, where once it was maybe over-tourism was a big driver and unique yeah. access. Now it's sort of, I want to... I, I don't want to be around necessarily all these people. Now, I think that will gradually wane, but I, I, I think people are, are, right, we're all getting out there and going, oh, okay, well, it's not so bad being on this plane, on crowded plane again, or it was a little weird at first, but maybe after, after I've done it two or three times, I think it's like anything you get back to doing again, right? But I think that trend will stay. I, I regardless, because people, you know, as cities come back and things do get busier, people are going to want to go back to the first reason they had it, right? Which is again, that more intimate, quieter experience. You know, it's, it's a little bit of a balancing act. Some groups are, I, I know that there's some companies out there that do super small groups. We found that sometimes, 
you know, there's a there's a certain optimal point where of group size where you have just enough people where it, it's not too many people that it feels too large, but not too few that if there's a couple folks that maybe you have a different chemistry with, it doesn't feel weird. You know what I mean? Like there's okay. always that balance when you have a group of, does everybody get along? Sometimes it'd be headed out of the park and sometimes it's like, okay, well, some of the group does and some of the group doesn't. And I think that we've hit on the right size to, to kind of navigate through that. I know we don't have a ton of time left, but I, I just have two final questions. Um, you mentioned over tourism. And again, pre-COVID, that seemed like one of the big challenges the industry was going to have to face moving forward. And I'm curious what, if, if you have a take or an opinion on, I mean, after COVID, hopefully we can, we, can, we can start talking about this. But I mean, what do you think the big challenges are for the industry moving forward out of this, out of this year and, out of, and into the next decade? What do you think is going to be the big topics of discussion? Well, I, I certainly think, you know, the, the challenge is about that you're seeing right now is about finding and maintaining talent. Uh, we, I think most operators are, are, will, you know, start recruiting, but what we see a lot in the frontline staff is the hospitality industry was really decimated, right? Half of the jobs that were lost in the United States, for example, were all hospitality and travel and tourism related jobs. So you, you see that, and, and, and that maybe not as severe in some countries, but certainly in that range has, has really, really impact service levels and, and restaurants and again, Bellman and housekeeping and hotels and all of that. And so that level of service, that high level of service that our guests expect sometimes isn't always there yet, right? So I think convincing people that hospitality is a viable, exciting, fulfilling career might take a little bit more convincing. Overall, I think that'll be good for the industry because I think it'll it'll highlight all the benefits um, and, and maybe make it from a from a financial perspective a little bit more rewarding for people as well so they stick but but that that certainly is one of them I, I think there's the the challenges will be none of us saw this coming like we, we carried no debt we had lots of you know reserve funds rainy day funds and and we would have board members going coming in and going wow what are you doing with all that but yet we've been challenged too right so what's the next thing we no one knows right it's that uncertainty so trying to prepare and sort of use this time to sort of rebuild coffers so that we can be prepared and for for whatever the next thing is but then i, I it is going to move to sustainability and you already see europe is way ahead of us i think in this of there will be some cities that will be impacted again by over tourism i mean you saw venice already changed their approach you see amsterdam already was barcelona is and it's increasingly, whether it's carbon footprint or plastic reduction or elimination or whatever the case might be, that's going to come roaring back as a big issue. Because at the end of the day, as borders do start opening, and it might take another year or two, but they, the world will all be traveling again. We're going to have, we're going to come back to some of those same issues. Because back to my point before, people forget they're incredibly resilient. They're going to want to travel. They're going to want to have these experiences. So how can we be responsible stewards moving forward to ensure not only can we show our guests all the wonders of the world, not only because everybody is an innate explorer, how can we harness that in a way that allows them to appreciate perhaps what we need this more than ever right now, right? To have that common understanding. We're all tired of being on Zoom. We're all tired of all the technical interactions and we need that personal interaction for, for so many reasons um, that I could get into. But we need to do it in a way that, doesn't damage the opportunity for future generations. I mean, you look at the national parks, they, they have been preserved 
because they're national parks, right? That you can go there now and you can have pretty much a similar, if not the same experience that you did with different cars or something than, or, or coaches than 30, 40, 50 years ago, right? Because of the, the act of preservation. So the role of preservation and culture sustainability on how are we gonna take care of our planet so that we can manage through this. Because I'll tell you, we've had more, uh, we've had more disruptions from wildfires and flooding this fall than we had from COVID issues. Here in New York, we've, uh, I mean- Oh, it was awful. It was bad, yeah. I mean, the images from the from the flooding from the subway, I mean, even around my neighborhood here, it was it was just, it seemed to just okay? happen so quickly. We were fine, but yeah. uh, it was, I mean, we couldn't walk, you couldn't walk outside, obviously, that night. It right. was worse in some neighborhoods, so I felt fairly lucky. But yeah, but it seems like we're seeing more stuff that can be categorized as first ever or once in a lifetime just constantly now. And that's a bit of a scary, a scary thought. Yeah. So my final question is, and again, I do really do appreciate your time, but I do oh. want to ask you because you mentioned staffing issues might be uh, might be a concern going forward or might be one of the issues that the industry has to tackle. I was going to ask you for advice for people who want to pursue a career in travel and hospitality, but I, I, I'm curious if you have any advice or any takes on companies who are trying to recruit people. I mean, how do you go out and find the best talent to come into this industry that is going to need it as it continues to expand once it sort of repairs itself post COVID? I mean, do you have any advice or any uh, any wisdom that you would be willing to share? So wisdom for recruiters and then wisdom for, um, for folks interested in getting in. For recruiters, I mean, I think fortunately or unfortunately, this is the, the bittersweet part of uh, of this time right now is because there were so there was so much disruption and closures and reduction in staff among tour operators among cruise lines among hotel operations whatever the case might be i think there's a robust pool out there i mean we found like literally yeah. you know word of mouth it always is the best way right that's just true i think for for everything word of mouth referrals but you know linkedin and indeed and those sorts of platforms um, tend to be pretty, pretty successful as well. So I think just making sure that you have, uh, maybe this gets now into what people who are getting into the industry want to do is make sure that your LinkedIn, you know, resume is updated, make sure that you follow the protocols. Like a lot of people will email me their resume directly. I'm like, please put it on our career site okay. because you know, enter it there because that's how we keep everything organized. You do not want me to keep things, things organized. So it's just understanding the protocols and making sure that you, you follow up. I would also, so I, I think for, for recruiters, it's in our space, I think, I won't say it's easy at all, but I think there's some pretty clear that, that there might be more talent in, in that area that, that we could draw from. I think where it's really hard is for frontline staff. So I think if you're a hotel hiring or restaurants hiring, I mean, I, every, I'm sure you see this in New York too, almost every restaurant you go by, they're hiring. Help wanted, um, yeah. You know, they want help wanted for staffers, for um, servers, for line chefs, for housekeeping, for, you know, I now have the hotels with um, the restaurant staff and hotels. So that I think we've seen some movement, obviously, with increased minimum wage um, for some of those, and and just we had more flexible, you know, benefits and support for folks. I, you know, it's, it was realizing that you can get burned out in this pretty easily, um, and hopefully, some of the anger that a lot of these poor people are seeing from just difficult clients or difficult, you know, customers abates because no one should have to deal with that. I mean, that's just human common courtesy. Like, I don't have a lot of time for irate people in that way. As it relates to people who are wanting to get their um, search out there, again, LinkedIn, you know, follow, you know, contact the HR departments. I would also say that like us and many uh, in our industry, at least, 
I think a lot of the hiring is going to be staged because of the uncertainty. Like you don't want to, nobody wants to go through what we went through from a staffing perspective a year and a half ago. So it's going to be more gradual. So even though there might not be a position open now, there might be a position open six months from now or nine months from now. So just because someone says no once doesn't mean that the doors are already closed. So I think it's about having enough self-confidence to say, okay, well, let's, it might be just a wait, you know, waiting some time. But at the end of the day, sort of what I said earlier, the advice to people getting in this industry is think really hard. Do you have a passion and a desire to serve others? Or do you just like to travel? Because I have, I, everybody I come, you know, will come walk in the door and not, you know, the first question will be, so how'd you, you know, what, what interests you in tech? Well, I love to travel. You know, I love the travel space. Don't we all? Well, most people, yeah. right? And, yeah. and so what is it about beyond that, that motivates you? What makes, what, what, what brings you joy? What brings you satisfaction? And we've always said that the most important asset that we have is our people. And it, it's this intent desire to make things better and better still, to make things better for our guests, to help the guest, to help our advisors, to help, to serve. And you have to think really long and hard. Are you that kind of person? Not everybody is. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a judgment call. It's just, it's a question of, is this the right industry for you? Because if, if you don't have that fundamentally, I mean, maybe there's some roles that you could take on that perhaps don't have that intensity or, or need, but you all are serving each other at the end of the day. And I, I think that's, it's one of the things that why I love it. I mean, I, I get tremendous energy from, from work and from the people I get to interact with from having conversations like you with you, you know, that you, you meet interesting people and you have interesting conversations and, and you learn something and, and you want to help, right? You want to, how can we make this better? And there's a, there's a supportive nature of this industry that I've not seen in other industries that I've worked with and worked in before. And you have to decide if you're that kind of person or not. And not everybody is. And again, that's not, I could, I would last about a nanosecond in investment banking, you know? So it, it just depends on finding what's right for you. What's your sense of purpose and what's going to drive you and excite you every day, because you do have the luxury of figuring that out. And I think, you know, there's, there's a rich market of hiring right now out there. I think that there's, there's an opportunity to really reflect, but I can tell you one thing, if you choose to go into travel and, and it's the right fit for you, it's be the most rewarding thing you've done in your life. I think that's a great note to uh, to wrap up on. I know I went a little over the time, but I again, Jennifer, I know you just got off red eye. You're probably you're probably very tired, but thank you so much for your willingness to talk to me and and your time today. Oh, Dan, this was really fun. It was a real yeah. pleasure, and I hope I haven't bored you to tears. But no, um, it was. Uh, hopefully, we'll be able to meet in person sometime soon. And I really wish you the best. And I, I wish everybody out there that's looking and hiring. You know, we're gonna come back. We're gonna. We're gonna. It, every day it gets better. It really, really does. And uh, it. It's going to be an exciting future ahead. I, I'm confident in that. I echo those thoughts. I, I hope to see you very soon in person, and I'm sure I will. And uh, best of luck with everything. And uh, yeah, have a great, uh, great rest of your week. Great. Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye bye.